From Phil Svitek comes a weekly digital series where he shares his insights, concepts, and findings learned during his 15-year journey of working in the entertainment industry. Each lesson offers you a roadmap to overcome the challenges that all artists face on the path to success. Welcome to Phil Svitek Podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Svitek, 360 Creative Coach, and it's my pleasure to help creatives such as you master mental fortitude because it takes way more than just talent and luck to succeed in the entertainment industry. Now, what I mean by mastering mental fortitude is this notion of, it's a mindset, it's, it, 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 it's grit, right? They call it mental toughness to be able to overcome life's obstacles as well as the creative process because it can be arduous at times. And part of how I try to teach is to have various lessons but also by introducing people that I know in my life that are doing some amazing things. And so in this episode, I am interviewing Fern Rone, who I've known for a number of years through her work at AfterBuzz TV. And she's done various shows at the network, but at a certain point after knowing her for a couple of years, she approached me saying that she's coming out with a book and we at, we at AfterBuzz always love supporting the talent that we have. And so I was always on board of like, okay, how, how do we help? And what was cool about that experience is that I got to know a different side of Fern. And, you know, if you watch my blogs and things of that nature, follow me, you know that I myself love fiction writing and am dabbling with myself. I just think it's another great creative form, creative outlet for any artist out there. And so in this particular episode, I, I, I break down the creative process with her in terms of writing. Now, if you're not an author yourself, a lot of these same techniques can apply to screenwriting or just the creative process in general. Like Fern's story, for example, she, she was in a different stage of life, different career path, and found that she was missing something creatively and shifted gears and has managed to combine the two. Unlike most people who would look at their life and say, oh, I've wasted X amount of years. No, she she was able to take those parts and apply them to her new career of hosting and being an author, a podcaster, and so forth. So I think that's a great mindset. She always has this very positive spirit that I absolutely love. And what I love about the interview is that I learned a lot of things that I didn't know uh, about the writing process, but also Fern herself. So uh, I think she's a very interesting person. Now, the so in particular, her first book, Better in the Morning, came out a couple of years ago, and I've had a chance to read that. And then the reason why we're doing this interview is she's coming out with her second book called Better Believe It, which isn't a direct sequel. It's more like a companion book to Better in the Morning. Um, with the same primary character, but um, but different side characters and different overall plot. I, I highly encourage you to check out her work just in general, whether it's the books, her podcast hosting, like she does a plethora of various, various things in the entertainment industry. The best way to kind of keep in touch is she has a website, fernronay.com or on social media at fernronay. I will provide the links in the description box for ease for you. But without further ado, let's get to my amazing and wide-ranging interview with Fern Ronay. 
So welcome, Firm, to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to have you for a number of reasons. Uh, I think you're multi-talented on a number of levels, but um, but we're primarily talking about your second book. Mm-hmm. And I guess a na- natural sort of position to start with is, what was the difference of writing the first book versus the second book? Because a lot of artists will say this, the second time around is easy because you know it. Mm-hmm. Is it easy or is it harder because now you're like, now I have to do it again? <laughs> yeah, it's both. It's definitely easier because I learned so much writing the first book about pacing, about dialogue, about um, timing and scenes. So that part was easier. But the I knew I had to tell this second story. I knew I had to write a second book and it was daunting. Now, I have to do it. Like you said, I'm like, I have to do it all over again. So I said to Howie the other day, I'm like, I don't know if I have a third book in me. Like I need a break. I need some time. I'm going to work on other things. So it was daunting. It was hard, but it was easier in the respect of the mechanics. I knew what I was doing to a degree. So awesome. And what was the second book more of an artistic inclination or uh, an audience push, publisher push, or just combination of all three? Combination of all three. This, they're both standalone. It looks like a series because it's better in the morning and better believe it. And better in the morning is the story of Veronica. She's a single 29-year-old Manhattan lawyer who's guided in her dreams by her dead Italian grandparents. Better believe it is the story of her best friend. So they're standalone. You don't have to read one and then the other. But I it felt does like help. Yeah, yeah, it does help. And I felt like Jada's story had to be told. So it was a combination of all those things. Mm-hmm. Now how much of this do you borrow versus fictionalized? <laughs> and because I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, th- I feel like on the surface, the answer would be, well, it is kind of your life. But having done a similar thing, uh, I sort of get asked the same question. I would say like, in the end, it's only about like 20% of it is actual real life. It's true. It's so funny, because people think the first book and Veronica is based on me. She's a lawyer. She's Italian. She lives in New York City. She believes her grandparents are sending her signs. That's all me. But they're, the rest of it, I'm like, it's a fiction. I made it up. Like, none of these things happen to me. Yes, she has this this love interest who's a bald Jew, a Jewish guy. Um, and if you know me, that's my husband. Um, but everything else, no, like none of those things happened to me. I made it all up. It's fiction. A lot of people say, what does your dad think of the book? Because her, Veronica's dad is kind of a, he's kind of a putz. Um, the parents are divorced. I'm like, I don't, he doesn't think anything. <laughs> he hasn't even read it, but he, um, he, he wouldn't be offended. It's not him. My parents no. have been married almost 50 years. It's not based on them. Um, so it's not entirely based on me. Yeah, it's fiction. And in it, it, that sense, like, was it just more fun to write something new? Or because for me, it was like, well, real life, as fun as I think it might have been, is kind of really boring. So you have to dra- dramatize it. <laughs> uh-huh, exactly. And then the more you do that over time, it's like, well, that's not really my life anymore. <laughs> so. It's so true. People think that something funny that happens in real life will translate into a screenplay, a, a novel. Not always, and hardly ever. It, it has to be dramatic and funny enough to, be, to translate. Yeah. Just because it was funny in real life is, doesn't always mean it's going to be funny in the book. And um, this, this writing inclination, let's go back to the first book, um, Better in the Morning. Uh, what, did, did you 
grow up with a love of literature and that's what kind of propelled you forward? Like, wh- no. where did this come from? I majored from? in accounting. I never considered myself a creative person. I graduated, worked for Deloitte & Touche, got my CPA, then I went to law school at Boston College, graduated, worked for a law firm, passed the bar. And then there came a time where I used to be, like I always say, I ha- used to have such a high tolerance for boring material. Like the bar, the CPA exam, like give it to me. I can do it. I can do it. I'm smart. I don't care how boring it is. Like I can crack it. And then I got to a point in my life where I was like, my tolerance for boring material plummeted. And Is I it because like, you I- like consumed so much of it? Just Perhaps. Religiously? <laughs> Perhaps. I had my fill and I was like, I just can't do this. I remember, you know, I worked in the World Financial Center in downtown Manhattan, being in a conference room and thinking, I can't do this for another 30 years. Like, people say life is too short. Life is long, too. Like, I was like, I can't do this. And I started working with a career coach, and I realized that my passion is people's stories and writing, and that's what I'm interested in. And I couldn't, even though I always considered myself not a creative person, I couldn't fight it anymore. And not to get too serious, but six weeks before my 30th birthday, my 21-year-old cousin died suddenly. She was in the hospital for a bladder infection. It came out of the blue. And I, you don't realize these things, how they affect you until some time has passed, and it deeply affected me and how I wanted to live yeah, the rest no, of my I, life. I mean, I'm sure, reflecting back on the World Trade Center as well, mm-hmm. like that's... Yeah, I worked That in, kind of gives you perspective as well. Yeah, it's crazy. I So I worked for Deloitte right after college, and my first Christmas office party was at Windows on the World, mm-hmm. which is not there anymore. And I was in Boston on September 11th, and I remember thinking... I was right there for year for two years, and I it was very it was personal and it was very hard. Yeah, no, I, I yeah, it I affects can, you. It does, it does, and um, I I don't know who it wouldn't affect really. Mm-hmm. Um, to that point, though, uh, so you worked with you worked with a coach, and um, I'm always I always appreciate people who kind of know that they want to get to a point, but know that like they have greatness within them, but they also need guidance. Um, can you talk about that process of like, you know, to, what was that certain, like one day you just woke up and you're like, I, I need, just need some help. Yes. Google searched it. What? Yes. I, that's exactly, and that's pretty much what happens in the book. So these things that come to you, I believe when you go to sleep at night, you can meet with spirit guides, loved ones on another plane. And when you wake up in the morning, you don't always remember it, but there's a reason things seem better in the morning. And then as you go through the day, these kind of thoughts come to you. They're not coming out of nowhere. You're being guided by greater forces. So if you have a gut feeling, if something's telling you to do something, you have to listen to it. Or one day you'll be in a conference room after passing the New York bar and the CPA exam and be like, I don't want to do this. You can't ignore what your gut's telling you. If You can't say I'm not a creative person because someday it's going to catch up to you and you're just going to have to do these things. So I was working, I was working in New York and I was like, I have to, I have to, I can't quit and become a writer. I have to do this slowly but surely. So I started taking writing classes um, at Media Bistro, which is, I I remember I took intro to chiclet novel writing. (laughs) Um, And (laughs) what was the biggest takeaway from that? It was so helpful because I didn't, study writing in, in, formally before, so I didn't know the three-arc 
the three arc format, you know, the three act play format. Mm-hmm. I didn't know, you know, how to make an outline, how to create an arc. I learned so much mechanical stuff in intro to Chicklet. <laughs> So they, they hooked you in with the boring. They did. But to me, it was so interesting. I was yeah. like, I remember I had these characters in my head, Veronica and Sal and Antoinette. And then I remember hearing, you know, we had to do our outline. We had to hand it out and, you know, people would talk about your characters. And it was so exciting to hear people talking about these characters that I made up. And so it was partly a workshop, so there was an education component, yes, but, mm-hmm. but you also, it wasn't just theoretical. Yes, exactly. And I remember thinking, like, I can't believe people get to do this for real. Like, this is someone's job is to create. That was so exciting to me. So yeah, that was the beginning. Well, I also, I also appreciate the fact that you looked at it from a practical standpoint, because there's also some people of like, okay, I want to go after my artistic dreams, and they'll stop everything and then just go after it, and... You know, even the people that do that, they understand like, okay, I might have to bartend to do it, but the, you know, mm-hmm. there's still a level of reality check that has to happen. Mm-hmm. Of like, I got to live a life. Exactly. Um, so that's that's cool that you kind of had that uh, foresight and all that. Um, in terms of, I don't know. Yeah, what what was the feedback like on the outline, and how much did it change versus very a lot? different? Very different. Yeah. So I didn't understand pacing. I didn't understand how to create a scene. I didn't understand, you know, where certain things should go. I, I, I loved learning the three act play format. I feel like it opened up my world, but I still had a lot to learn. So it changed a lot. Okay. Okay. Um, and from, from that point on, like what was, I mean, time wise, your first draft Mm -hmm. and how many drafts in general did it take from, from beginning to completion? Like a million. <laughs> I um, we I had a wonderful class. I think it was eight women in this class in New York. And then I moved to Chicago. But we all kept in touch. And we're still in touch on Facebook. And we were exchanging pages for a while. And then that kind of died down. And then I found, you know, thank God for social media and, and these groups I found online. So I would exchange, you know, with beta readers, I would exchange the pages. Then I went to... Was our- it Zotrope? No, I can't remember how I was found it one, them. Like, it, it, was it one of those where you revise four things and then they revise yours? No, it generally was like, that's how it works. Like, you, at least the ones that I've gotten, uh, you revise more than you get, type of thing, which I think is a good model. Yeah, I remember just exchanging with fellow authors, and we would just read each other's first fifty pages, and then we would decide to read more. Got it. Yeah, and just give feedback that way. And what was early on? What was most of the feedback? Most of the feedback, God, I feel like it was so long ago, but most of the feedback is usually the the main thing I found is that the characters' actions aren't consistent with their thoughts, mm-hmm. which is very frustrating for a reader. You you never want the reader to think, why is she doing that? Um, and sometimes it's hard to root for her. Some some people are like, she, you know, she's a lawyer. She works in New York. She's Complains like it, it too much. Compla- yeah, yeah, the complaining <laughs> aspect of it. So, well, let me ask you this. As far as the um, not matching actions, like, was it, did you, you know, was it purposeful? Like, when you kind of noticed that, it's it's like, I should maybe lean into it because she is a walking contradiction. Or, you know what, this is not the way I'm intending it to be. Yeah, I, it was not the way I was intending it to be. You want the, because... Because the book is written in first person and you're, you're inside her thoughts, you know what she's thinking and what she's struggling with, 
um, if there was a contradiction in actions, she has to recognize it for it to be satisfying, I think. Mm -hmm. And she has to, if she, her actions have to be in line with what she's working toward her goal, whatever that is. Yeah. And going into the second book, I mean, how, how much of that was kind of top of mind and were you able to address early on? And like, what was it, was a, I mean, I imagine it's a faster process, but like a lot of the early drafts of the first book, you can kind of mesh into the first draft of this and not have to go through as many processes. Yes, it was the learning process. It was so much more streamlined. So I didn't have those same struggles. The struggle with the second book was this character was the secondary character in the first book. So she kind of got all the funny lines. She got to be kind of bitchy. She got to be, you know, it wasn't her story. So she kind of got to be the sidekick that was comic relief and and, and a three-dimensionalize her yes she was a foil in the first book and now she's she's has to be three-dimensionalized and how did you approach that it was hard <laughs> because I couldn't under sometimes I couldn't understand her actions and where she came from but then I found pieces of her that I could relate to she's she doesn't have a lot of patience sometimes we all have that and, so, and I get where she was coming with coming from with that um, she feels misunderstood. That's something we can all relate to. She, she has, I, I found characteristics that I could pull out and make relatable and, and make her story. Like, why does she act like this? Mm -hmm. Do you find, uh, I know a big breakthrough for me was when I started to really love all my characters and for you, you don't necessarily like, I don't look at your books as having a true antagonist necessarily, whereas mine did but mm -hmm. I had to love my antagonist. Mm -hmm. So do you do you love all your characters equally? No, it's so funny because in the first book, her boss and coworker were monsters, and at the end, monsters like in you know, they were just awful people. But I wanted them to be understood too. And at the end, I kind of had a backstory for the boss where she, you know, has has a horrible relationship with her husband. Ultimately, they have a terrible marriage. That's why she's at the office all the time. And the horrible coworker is caring for her mother who had who was had alzheimer's or something like that and my editor was like it's too depressing this is a chiclet book and you don't have to go into that much detail about these secondary characters but i wanted them to be understood i feel like there's a need mm -hmm. to want all of your characters to be understood and it, and it is kind of important because you don't want your characters to be so one-dimensional but if they're secondary characters it's it's a little more okay I want to talk, so uh, chick, chick lit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the genre of that. Heading into 2020, like, I just want to get your perspective of, like, just even the phrase of it. Like, I don't know. Is, is it, is that a positive thing? I don't know. They've like, been um, saying, as a man, I'm trying, <laughs> yeah, to, okay. I'm trying to learn. They say, they've been saying chick lit is dead for years. And that's, that's fine. I and think. And what, what, like, even, even on its core, like, what does that, what, yeah. what does it mean? So ultimately? there was a time when Bridget Jones and, all of the Sophie Kinsella books, those were extremely popular. Emily Giffen, who's a former lawyer, she was she was always my, and still is kind of a, you know, I, I look up to her. Um, so there was a time when they were extremely popular. And then it kind of dipped, but there's still a market for it. And I can't write to what the market needs are. I can only write to what's in my soul. And in my soul, it's, I describe my books as sex in the city meets ghost. Mm -hmm. I I, I'm just, 
they're chiclet, they're the, women's the, fiction. The market doesn't know what old, like a good book yes. or a good movie, good music. Like ultimately, that's what's going to win out. Every, yes. Everyone tries to formalize it, and then it becomes like, oh well, that the second movie failed. It's like, well, yeah, because you tried to carve and copy it. <laughs> right. right. What's authentic and what speaks to people will succeed. And my, if I think that my books, because they're they're these modern day stories with this element of spirituality, I just want people to know that if they believe that they're getting signs, they're not weird, they're not crazy. It's happened to me. It's it's happening to everyone I believe and if you recognize it you you'll recognize it I don't want anyone to think they're crazy or weird or abnormal this is a modern day tale of something that has a spiritual element that's very real and I want the spiritual idea to be relatable and adapt and accessible yeah so how much how, how much of your planning goes into like thematic elements like that motifs and metaphors whatever else or you're like you know what i'm just trying to write no if it, it comes it comes it, not a lot because the theme is already there mm-hmm. so i think sometimes maybe people write and they're like trying to thread a theme through just to make it to elevate it the theme is already there that we're on this earth as souls to learn and evolve and everything we experience is just getting our soul closer to that to evolving and <clears throat> we're able to communicate in our dreams, which they're not really dreams, they're visits, we're able to communicate when we're awake through signs and symbols. And those are the the themes that just naturally are in the book. And then, of course, with each character, what they have to learn. So Jada has so much to learn about. So do, and so does Veronica. Do you do research for your books? Like, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, just people like Jennifer Freed. Maybe you've read some of her books. Or, like, I'm trying to think of, like, other people in this realm. So from particularly for the second book, Jada is unhappily married and has a, a son. I'm happily married, thank God, knock wood. And I, we're happily child-free. We don't want kids. So I'm like, how do I write a, an unhappily married mother? So I read a lot of the mommy blogs, and I read a lot of the anonymous comments. Because in the anonymous comments are when people tell the truth of what's going on in their home, the in their thoughts, truth? in their life. That they married the wrong person, that they wish they never... That they that they had a child and they love their child, but their life will never be the same and it's terrifying. Those thoughts, I think people aren't ready to share when with their with their Whatever name the attached to of, it. Yeah, the opposite of anonymous. <laughs> yes. Named, I guess. Would yes. Be the, I don't know what the term would so be. So those thoughts would never occur to me, but I realized that, that could that's Jada's struggle. Like, you know, these are... So I had to do research to get into her mind in that way. Mm-hmm. And um, was it just just the blogs? That was your primary research. Was there yeah. any, any books or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, but no, primarily people. There's so much information out there. I mean, yeah. I love to read, but and I love podcasts and I love information gathering in general. But um, yeah, the, the anonymous and Reddit that kind of stuff. Got it. In- interesting that you went that route because yeah. uh, you would think like the the books are more boring, so you would have <laughs> gone that route. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do love boring things. <laughs> um. No, that's, that's, that's really cool. Um, and yeah, so, I, I mean, we haven't really kind of talked about it, but like, uh, just describe, like, it's, the second book is primarily focused with the best friend. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I don't know, going a little bit deeper without giving, mm-hmm. obviously, the story away, mm-hmm. um, what else would you like to share with the audience? She has a lot to learn about 
being compassionate to other people, particularly in her own family. So that's another thing she struggles with. She always, it's not giving too much away, it's in the prologue, she always felt that her mother favored her sister, Mm -hmm. which I think is one of the most damaging things a human can experience. And I've witnessed it with people that I know and that their inner child could still be hurt even as a successful lawyer. You know, by all accounts, it looks great on the outside, but they're still suffering from that insecurity and that hole in their heart and that's something she struggles with do you yeah just observing it in real life do you feel like almost the more successful someone is the more pain they are <laughs> of no. like they're making up for something maybe maybe i don't know i don't know because I, I know a lot of successful people i think are very well adjusted and i know a lot of successful people who need are help. not well adjusted <laughs> so yeah. i think it's but who knows yeah but yeah, yeah there is that that kind of, you know, people have described me as an overachiever. And is there something that I'm trying to prove? That's something I'm still working on. I think I was for a long time. And then I realized what my true passions were and what I what I had to be pursuing in my life. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's, that could be an element to it. Going back to a thing that you mentioned, like with your first book, um, the editor said, perhaps it's a little too depressing, like it's mm-hmm. chiclet, we got to... Uh, make it a little bit lighter lighter mm-hmm. um what sort of notes were you getting on with the second book was it the same sort that of stuff? the that the main character was unlikable <laughs> she was so harsh i made her do you take that personally because i mean I, you know like if any you imagine the main character is mostly like you yeah but you can't you can't you it's so hard but you have to take ego out of everything in life and and it's as hard as it is you just have to say, I created this character and and she's not enjoyable for this reason for, to the reader. So she has to be tempered in a certain way. And it's 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 business. It's not personal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, having been on the receiving end of your notes, too, what, what I appreciate, I, f- I feel like you've also understood how to give notes in such a way where it is actually constructive. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people use like the compliment shits the compliment sandwich and i smell bs on that all day but i don't know i I feel like maybe you're not conscious of it but you've picked up a way to deliver notes Mm -hmm. with compassion and empathy but also being direct of like no here's what you need to do versus like it's all great (laughs) okay good good yeah so i I how's your book coming because i remember i read it last year it's uh hopefully the final revision nice nice getting there nice getting there I got to, uh, well, it leads to a nice, uh, nice question, right? So one of the things, this is just in my mind, uh, mine's like 96,000 words and mm-hmm. I want to cut it down to 80,000 because mm-hmm. I don't know, just to me, a shorter length, like especially a first time author, people are much more willing to pick up a book. Mm-hmm. Is it going to hurt the story? I don't know. I haven't fully cut out those words, but like how conscious were you of just pure word count going back to the boring I think for the first draft, you're always conscious of word count because you're like, I'm halfway there, I'm, you know, for your goal. Well, and you're like, you're like counting up. Like, can I yes, get to, yes. <laughs> can I even write 50,000 yes. words, let alone all of a sudden I'm like 96,000 words? Why did I write so many? I think my, I think this, the, one of the drafts of Better Believe It was nine, um, was almost 90,000. And I think I got it down to 83 and I cut out a lot of stuff that was, that in the second reading or the you know, 200 reading felt like this isn't 
needed to move the story along. I think your instincts get better with every every draft, and I think this is true for every writer, no matter what stage they are at. Your instincts just get better with every draft. So at that point, my instincts were telling me this isn't moving the story along, and you want to so entertain it's primarily on every you page. Were taking out or yeah, old words. inner dialogue, backstory. And not whole scenes, but chunks of scenes that were not keeping the action going. Was there was there um, a pattern of the types of scenes, or not sections of scenes? Like you said, like for example, you mentioned inner inner thoughts. Mm-hmm. So that's a pattern to me. Yeah. Were there others? Yeah, backstory that at the time felt necessary, and then it could be cut. Yeah. Without without risking understanding the main character or moving the story along mm-hmm. <clears throat> awesome well you also mentioned a third book <laughs> i don't have it in may not now <laughs> but a, a, not, not a third fiction book but do you have the idea yeah I, well for a fiction book i have perhaps an idea of four sisters who all meet with their mother and then how it affects you know at night in their dreams and she sends them signs and how they relate to each other in life but uh I can't do it anytime in the anytime Okay, so it seems like you're funny. much more partial to maybe doing something nonfiction. Yes, I would love... And what love, would that be? I would love to compile a book of all stories of signs of celebrities. Because right or wrong, when a celebrity says that they experience this too, it, it validates it in some way, right or wrong. Um, when Kim Kardashian said that uh, when a bird comes to her, she feels like it's a sign from her father. And... Emma Stone said on David Letterman that her grandfather sends her quarters. When those when people tell those stories, I think it it normalizes it, which is what I want to do. I want to make these stories relatable and accessible and normalized and you're not crazy or weird if you think this is happening to you. So yeah. I hope I do that with my books and with my podcast and with and I would love to do a nonfiction book compiling all of these stories. Mm-hmm. And just from the standpoint of of audience interaction like the cool part about you you're not just an author you're also a host and so you get to connect with different audiences across you know different mediums um but i i don't know how in terms of like your fan base overall like um i don't know what do you, what do you find your audience gravitating towards in terms of that the work that you do i found that <clears throat> a lot of people i'm so grateful to after buzz i'm so grateful to you guys it's been amazing for me, and I loved. I still love every time I'm there. I just love the feeling of being there, and I love everyone that I meet who contacts me on Twitter, or contacts me on Facebook or Instagram. And there are people who've, who still recently someone DM'd me and said, "I used to watch you on um, Housewives of Beverly Hills with Megan and Christy and Grant, and you know." I gotta imagine the housewives <laughs> in particular was a good uh, training grounds the wrong word, but like a nice nice window into kind of just life of housewives in general and being like, okay, I'm gonna piece certain elements it's, into things. It's so funny because yes, because they're at the core, it's just you're just analyzing characters. So yes, it's so, and that's the other thing I'm so grateful to AfterBuzz because through AfterBuzz I met John Edward and I was interviewed by him on his show, The Psychic Medium, and he said, "How do you, you know?" He asked me about watching Housewives, and I was yeah. like, "I 
you know, I just love characters. I love to analyze people. I love to analyze people's stories. I love to hear people's stories. So yeah, it was a great insight. And the fans of After, uh, the After Buzz fans of the Housewives After shows translated into other things. We connect on social media. They have stories of signs. They, it does, just because you watch Housewives doesn't mean you're not, you know, also have this aspect of your personality. Yeah, I think, I think if, yeah, for the most part, people who watch the Kardashians or the Housewives, they kind of know why they're watching it. Yeah, they're, not. <laughs> they're pretty self-aware. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not watching it, <laughs> but I think it's great A storytelling. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's just the nice escape, ultimately. Exactly. Um, excellent. And, and um, so the, the, the second book has yet to come out, but it's coming out December 3rd. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and I don't know, what, what, what do you hope the reception is going to be like? You know, you mentioned it being okay for people to feel mm-hmm. a certain way. Um, but beyond that. I just hope that people, I always said, whoever is meant to read these books will be led to them somehow. I hope if you're listening and you've experienced signs and you want to tell someone, tell me. You know, we talk about purpose. What's my purpose? My purpose is to listen. I think I'm a great listener. I do say so. I I love to hear people's stories. And if you have no one that you can tell in your life that you, you know, like this happened to me, I don't, it, I don't know if it's a weird coincidence or I don't know if it's a, a message of some sort and you have no one to tell, DM me, tell me, I want to hear everyone's stories. Listen to my podcast, join my private Facebook group. You're not alone. What's the private Facebook group? Um, it's called Believers in Signs. Excellent. It's pretty on the nose. Um, yeah, so I just, I, what I hope to gain is they and <clears throat> they enjoy the books, they're entertained, they laugh, they feel something, and it makes these stories accessible. And uh, just trying to channel the p- power of uh, laws of attraction. If this were a movie, who do you see playing who? <laughs> In an ideal cast. And by the way, you know, like you can, we can plus or minus this like 20 years. You could say like, you know, Sarah Jessica Parker from 10 years ago, <laughs> but uh, this, you know, this person from now, whatever it may be. If perhaps a treatment was prepared and there was a casting of, well, the grandfather and grandmother in the first book in Better in the Morning, I always envisioned Paul Sorvino maybe 10 years ago, Olympia Dukakis maybe 10 years ago. I don't know now, maybe Lainey Kazan. Um, and for the grand. I love Danny DeVito. Uh, for the main character of Veronica, I don't know. I, it, there's so many. There's so many people that that it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, who did? Who is our main? <laughs> um, oh We're God. trying to channel the spirits. Yes. Give us the answer. <laughs> Tell me who was it? Who was on the page for Veronica? I can't remember. Um, I can't remember, but, but I had the grandparents down mm-hmm. for sure. All right. Well, that's cool. And, um, any, any final thoughts like, um, to the, to the audience, um, just in general while, while you're, <sighs> while you have the moment. Yeah. Just find me. You're not alone. You're listening to this particular episode Social for media, a reason. at Fern Rone, everything. Yeah. Everything's at Fern Rone, R-O-N-A-Y. Um, and just find me and I'd love to hear your stories and I'd love to hear from you in general. Yeah. Awesome. And I'm so grateful to you, Phil. Honestly, <laughs> when my first book came out, you worked so hard at AfterBuzz and Saturday was your day off. And I will never forget on my 
I had a book release party at After Buzz at the studio and you came in on your day off. You got the whole studio set up. You put all the furniture away. You took care of everything. And I will never forget that. And I was so grateful. And you've been so helpful in well, so many other ways. I appreciate that. I know what truth. a I know what a monumentous thing it is to to put out a work of art and I think that's you know that's the other thing. For me, you know, like with my show I try to inspire people and you know when you open up about your journey of, you know, you weren't happy artistically and then dove into this and the fact that now this is your second book and you might take a break from fiction, write some non-fiction. <laughs> So to most, that's not a break. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's that's amazing, and uh, I wish you the the best in your continued adventures. And yeah, I I love to brag about my friends, so I will continue doing that. Oh, thank you. So. Same, right <laughs> back. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you for watching my interview with Fern Rone. I hope you have benefited from it as much as I have. It was truly fantastic getting to know her, but also the lessons and, and the takeaways there. I truly, truly appreciated getting that time with her and I wish we could have gotten even more and I'm sure in the future we will in the meantime that does it for this episode but I encourage you to check out other episodes you can find them at philosophytech.com or you can just subscribe to to this right now so that way you'll be notified when new lessons come out uh, also if you prefer to learn by reading well i've taken my various lessons and put them in a course book so not only do you get the the lessons in written form but you also get to put them into practice because again it's a course so it's 35 jam-packed lessons in a workbook that i call master mental fortitude you can check that out at mastermentalfortitude.com and i have to give a huge shout out to the people that helped make this episode financially possible Thank you. If you too would look to support this show, you can do so by going over to my Patreon page or supporting some of my merch. Both links are provided down below. Or you can simply just tell a friend or leave a review on the platform you're on right now. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>